I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised, a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me at faithimprovised at gmail.com, or you can leave a voice message at the podcast homepage on anchor.fm. In this episode, I offer a few reflections on the last week. I talk about a great book on Paul's letter to the Romans, and I continue this series on the ungospel of Mark by talking about chapter 13, a wild and woolly passage filled with all sorts of end times judgment imagery, but that is actually profoundly practical. First off, just want to say this is my 20th episode, which is kind of cool. I'm glad it's still going, and I'm glad that I'm still having fun, and I'm glad that um, I've gotten to know uh, a bunch of folks that have written in, and um, I just think that that's fantastic. As I said, I'm doing this podcast for me, and I'm going to do it as long as I have fun, and uh, if it stops being fun, starts being a chore, I'll just find something else to do. But it's been good for me, keeps me mentally alert, keeps me thinking, and uh, keeps me sort of in issues instead of getting super mentally flabby. So I'll keep at it for a while. Uh, Second thought is my friend Steve sent me uh, a podcast episode from Sam Harris, which I thought was excellent, capturing just a crazy business with the election and the president's um, complete shenanigans and unprecedented mockery of all national norms and with um, the absolute clown show that is his presidency and um, Rudy Giuliani and all that he is about. It's just pure insanity. And uh, just like so much of his presidency, on one hand, it's funny. It's just it's absolutely nuts to watch some some uh, a handful of people act like complete clowns in public life. It just is always staggering. At the same time, it's tragic. My life is relatively unaffected by by how the president behaves. Um, but in marginalized communities, in communities that are on the edge, certainly people who are here without status as citizens, and in um, many African-American communities, many other folks, uh, whatever their ethnicity, who are urban poor, rural poor, you know, their lives change and they suffer when we have this kind of stuff going on. And um, as, a, as a professing Christian person, I find that outrageous and just more, it's a moral outrage. But I highly suggest checking out Sam Harris's um, podcast episode. I mean, he's, he's a very thoughtful person and his podcast is always worth attending to. But this episode called Republic of Lies, which I think is probably the most recent one, it's just an example of uh, intensely clear moral thinking. And uh, I find myself in agreement with nearly every word that he says on that episode. It's just, it's, it's, it's excellent. Um, especially with regard to Sam Harris's analysis of hearing friends talk about how, well, there's corruption on both sides, or all politicians are corrupt and lie, and that sort of thing. That is, that's, that is an, an instance or an illustration of intellectual laziness and moral laziness. That's simply not true. There are people, uh, there are many politicians who operate in good faith. Uh, there's there's a whole system that is up and running. And as Sam Harris says, it's loaded and laced with sort of bad incentives. There's people who fall short. But there's, there's a dramatic difference between uh, people like that and what has become of the Republican Party. Not only its loyalty to the moral outrage that is the current president and his presidency, uh, but just the long-standing practices of the Republican Party um, to sort of skew voting. And this is, I mean, read Dr. Carol Anderson's book uh, called White Rage, and I think she has a subsequent volume on voting rights. And and you know, do some research on the long-standing practice of the Republican Party to strip away certainly since 1970, but even before that, to strip away uh, the right to vote uh, from black Americans. It's it's un- unbelievable. And I have more to say about this down the road, but the politics of abortion and the idolatry of the Supreme Court have been wrapped up into that. So evangelicals who imagine that 
you know, uh, a godly way to vote is to uh, be a one issue voter and to vote Republicans into office because eventually somehow um, Roe v. Wade will be overturned through the appointment of originalist conservative judges, um, which is, to my mind, a complete act of willful blindness on the part of how and on the part of evangelicals as to how government even works and how the Supreme Court and the federal court system even work. Pro-life voters are wrapped up into this whole thing because uh, these very same judges are involved in judicial activism to strip away voting rights from African-Americans throughout the country um, because that is the way that the Republican Party can hold on to power. So to um, that very same thing from a different angle is not happening on the other side of the aisle. I don't have any um, faith in either political party. But that's just to say, not all politicians are the same. Not all politicians are actively involved in stripping away rights from people, but the Republican Party is involved in stripping away uh, uh, opportunities for the full participation in our national life on the part of already oppressed and marginalized people. And to my mind, that's just a tragedy. Well, well it's a moral outrage, um, but it's it's also tragic. And that just gives the lie to uh, the statement, you know, there's corruption on both sides or both sides are the same or whatever. That simply, that simply is a failure to pay close attention to how things work. Thirdly, I, this is something that's been uh, just on my mind for a long time. And uh, I, I just thought I would say something about it on here because we, we had a discussion uh, last week in class about this because the term came up in a translation assignment and uh, the term... Uh, was passion, uh, the the Greek term um, pathos, and um, it it just brought. It, we had a great discussion about this whole notion of passion, because uh, you know one of the realities about evangelical life is that uh, we imagine that passion is a good thing. There are conferences called passion. And uh, we say things like, well, I'm really passionate about this, or I'm really passionate about that. Um, or we tell kids who are graduating from high school and going to college, you know, find what you're passionate about. And we throw around that word, you know, in, in those sorts of ways. And we don't, <laughs> don't pay any attention to how the word is actually used in the New Testament and in the ancient world. Uh, passion is not a good thing. And that's important, actually, for thinking about being Christian, and also important for politics. I mean, when you read the literature that the founders wrote, they oppose passion to reason, and they see passion as a very dangerous thing when it comes to, um, you know, to national politics, because it is unreason. I mean, it's it's um, it's what makes people behave unreasonably, and. For some reason, evangelical Christians just have this, I don't know, our, the way that we use passion and just throw it around is, is just, it's nutso. Um, in Colossians 3, Paul talks about putting off a variety of things and in there, like getting rid of these things. And one of those is passion. And it, it may be the case, this is an interpretive issue, uh, it may be the case that he's... Um, you know, talking about sort of passionate lust or lustful passion in a sexual sense, um, I tend to think that in many of these contexts in the New Testament where uh, strong desire or passion are used, I think that we overread sex into those passages. I think evangelicals overread sex into everything. But passion here just means strong desire and and really what is opposed to reason. And you know, there's there's a variety of ethical schools of thought in the first century world that saw passion as dangerous, and so did Paul. So genuine piety in the New Testament is not characterized by by passion. In fact, it is characterized by having a handle on passion, um, because to be passionate is to behave in a way that is not self-controlled. Like I, I always just laugh when people say things like this. You know, I've got a passion for this or a passion for that. I, I want to say, do you mean you care about this issue so much you will behave unreasonably? Like you might get yourself arrested. That's how much you care about this topic. Um, 
or, or when people say to young people, you know, find what you're passionate about. Well, if you are if you are so wrapped up in an issue that you will behave unreasonably, you don't need to tell somebody, you know, find what that is. Like it's obvious they're behaving irresponsibly. So anyway, it's just we just think about this so wrong. We think about so many things so wrongly without paying attention to sort of the grammar of how thoughts hold together in the New Testament. And um passion i think is very very dangerous when it comes to politics there's just so much strong feeling and so little reason like examine the claims that politicians make look at facts look at evidence is this reliable is this true can you if you make a claim can you support it these are these are reasonable ways to think when it comes to observing you know national or state political scenarios and when it comes to navigating being Christian, the same dynamics should be up and running instead of like um, sort of giving vent to pure emotionality. There's, this is, there's a long tradition uh, in evangelical life shaping. Uh, there's a long tradition that sort of shapes evangelical life in this way coming out of pietism, um, you know, from you know, German pietism and, and sort of American oriented pietism coming out of the 19th century. And there's a long tradition of this in evangelical life over the last, say, 150 to 175 years, where we judge something as kind of reliable or unreliable based on the level of sincerity involved, you know, or or like genuineness or authenticity. And, you know, instead of sort of looking at facts or, or evidence or, um, trying to reason our way through a close observation of the biblical text and then to think well about how to be wise in light of that. Those sorts of ways of thinking don't really bring us anywhere in evangelical life, or they, they don't have any purchase. They don't gain any traction. What matters for us is passion. Again, because we don't attend to what is in the Bible. Of course, all the while claiming that we are the people of the Bible that pay most uh, most. Uh, close attention to the Bible. Anyway, I just thought I would mention that this is just something I always laugh about when I hear this just thrown around. Um, it just it makes so little sense. Genuine piety that pleases God in the New Testament is care taken by communities to do justice, um, care taken by communities to embody compassion through action, to care for those in need. Piety in the New Testament is not demonstrated by passion. That's a vice. Sort of a rant, but something to think about. I think it's always worth taking the time to think carefully in accord with Scripture rather than to sort of think lazily. I want to tell you about a book. It's one of the most interesting and helpful books on Paul's letter to the Romans that I've read in a long while. It's by Scott McKnight, and it's called Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire, and it's published by Baylor University Press. McKnight uh, proposes and then carries out a reading of Romans that starts at the end of the letter and works backward to the beginning. And it is loaded with insights because, in many ways, that's how Romans has to be read. In fact, a lot of Paul's letters could be read that way with loads of great results. In Protestant interpretation, the first eight chapters are the most important in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. In fact, if you pick up many commentaries on Romans and sort of put your hands, your, your fingers around the pages that contain the comment on the first eight chapters and then put your fingers around the comment uh, that covers the last eight chapters, the first eight are going to be a whole lot thicker than the second half of that volume. What Paul really is all about is justification by faith, and he's about theology and doctrine. And we typically conceive of Romans 1 to 8 containing all of that. Now, chapters 9 through 11 are also important, but they're kind of confusing. And the last four chapters are basically just an afterthought. Or I should say the last five chapters are basically just an afterthought when it comes to Romans because they're so practical. What 
you know, what's what's there that's all that important to say? It's just sort of, you know, yeah, get along with each other, that sort of thing. Or we have some nice ethics at the end. Well, Scott uh, prioritizes getting to grips with the practical reasons for Paul's writing the letter. So instead of reading from front or from beginning to end, why not start with the end and ask the question, where where is Paul driving? Where is he going in this letter? Let's study the end, and then let's see how he gets there. Sort of reset the table, which I think desperately needs to happen in Roman scholarship. And um, thankfully, Scott wrote this book, and he's a very clear writer, down-to-earth, um, wants to write for uh, pastors and for Christians in pews rather than for, uh, for fellow scholars. Uh, so he makes a big deal of all the greetings at the end of the letter. The households that hosted the churches in Rome that would have heard this letter first. And yes, I said heard, because McKnight also treats at length Phoebe, whom Paul commends in uh, Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. She's the one who would have read this letter aloud to all the churches. So uh, Scott covers her voice, talks about those, uh, those house churches, then about Phoebe, covers all the practical stuff in chapters 14 and 15, uh, with regard to the strong and the weak, these two groups that are not getting getting along in the uh, the Roman um, house church communities, and then makes his way back through the rest of the letter, basically uh, holding together the fact that what Paul is doing in the whole letter is bringing together and reconciling these two competing groups. If you have that in mind, Romans makes so much sense. If you think that Paul is writing a systematic theology, Romans 1 to 8 will be kind of confusing, uh, and much of the letter, but much of the rest of the letter won't make much sense either. This is a great read, reading Romans backwards. It's loaded with insights. I think this is absolutely the key to making Romans uh, make sense. Romans is not doctrine. It's not this kind of dry document meant to inform theologians only. It is utterly relevant. It's a document meant to um, resolve conflicts in house churches that are struggling with division over ethnic tensions. My word, what could be more relevant um, than something like that? So the book is by Scott McKnight. It's called Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire, published by Baylor University Press. Get it from an independent bookstore. So we come to Mark chapter 13, a chapter that had for a long time intimidated me and had put me off. I, I wanted nothing to do with this chapter whatsoever. I've made some comments in the past uh, on this podcast about how it is that my own education in gospels in, in, in the gospels was just so focused on history that and and proving you know the gospel's reliability when it came to, to history that I never really got into the narratives. And their power. Uh, in the same way, I grew up in um, in a, an environment that was wonderful in so many ways, but also highly uh, dispensational and focused on sort of end time speculation. And when I was in seminary, that was sort of all the rage as well. And I just could never really get too excited about those sorts of things. So I dreaded ever encountering uh, these kind of like apocalyptic sort of passages. Uh, probably, probably about 11 or 12 years ago, my friend Don and I were preaching through Mark's gospel at our church. And I don't know how this happened, but I ended up with Mark 13. And it just thinking about having to encounter it just gave me hives. Um, I just, you know, in having become um, a professional student of the Bible, uh, I found none of the spirit of of that kind of a pursuit in the New Testament, that you know, that's all wrapped up in eschatological speculation. And, I, and without really even getting into all the details and, and working through, you know, Revelation in detail or, or um, you know, Matthew 24 and 25 and Mark 13, some, you know, what's called the little apocalypse, without having worked through any of these passages in detail, I just knew something's wrong with that way of approaching the New Testament. And uh, it just felt like that was an irresponsible way of getting at things because that just doesn't seem like um, that's on the agenda of any of the New Testament writers. 
But back uh, 11 or 12 years ago, I read through this passage and studied it not in detail like I did uh, several years ago, but just reading through it carefully, I discovered that it was not about end time speculation at all. It's actually very mundane and very wise. And it's all about looking after each other in community. And um, since working on this passage more intensely for the commentary, I've come to see that it is all about that and more and and much more. It's actually pretty challenging stuff. Um, it, it challenges us uh, in some rather unexpected ways. It, in some way, it's sort of a philosophy of history that I think challenges many ways of thinking that Christians are um, sort of the thought forms that Christians are taught to take on uh, when it comes to thinking about providence and history and all that. Um, I think that it's a rebuke of trust in institutions that we imagine have God's blessing. And it's also a warning not to get caught up looking for signs of Christ's return. It's not, this is not a passage that gives signs of Christ's return. It's a warning to not look for signs of Christ's return, which was unexpected. I did not expect to find that. And it's also uh, an exhortation for the church to be vigilant in this current age, to be um, seeking to become communities of hospitality for the marginalized and for the excluded and service to the poor and the needy. So I want to talk about this chapter and sort of how it works and some of uh, the dynamics that are up and running in it. As far as the structure of this chapter goes, um, it sort of breaks down into maybe five sections. Uh, the first, in verses one to four, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, it's quite long. Um, you can do that on your own. But in, in uh, verses one to four, there's a conversation that Jesus and a few of his disciples have um, as they're leaving the temple, and that ha- um, where Jesus predicts the temple's destruction. Then verses 5 to 23 are one cohesive chunk, chunk o text. And here, uh, Jesus gives signs of sort of building cultural unrest, and they become signs of the temple's destruction and uh, sort of point ahead uh, to an ongoing age of destruction. Like this whole present age is going to be an age of, you know, ongoing catastrophes and cataclysms. And none of these events, none of these events signal the end of history, and none of them are signs of the return of the Son of Man. So this is what I mean when I say that this passage in some ways is sort of like an overview of history. It History is going to be this unending series of destructions. And wise people don't look at any of those and imagine that they are signs of the return of Christ, they they take action in other ways. So that's verses 5 to 23, sort of the bulk of the chapter. In uh, verses 24 to 27, Jesus describes the return of the Son of Man for which there will be no sign. So in verses 24 to 27, Jesus talks about a distinct event that is separate from this um, this unending series of destructions that characterize the present age. This, there's a distinct event, and that's the return of the Son of Man. And for that event, there won't be a sign. Then um, the chapter closes with two parables. In, in verses uh, 28 to 31, Jesus tells a parable of watchfulness for signs of the temple's destruction. So verses 28 to 31 uh, go, is, is, a, is a parable talking about verses 5 to 23. So there's, he gives a parable um, for his disciples to look out for signs of coming destruction, like read the signs, uh, and you'll know when there's going to be a, um, a social and cultural catastrophe. And then the second parable matches up with the return of the Son of Man for which there will be no sign. And there he tells a parable of faithfulness um, in light of the coming of the Son of Man that has no sign. So since you don't know when he's coming back, be faithful. So I'll just kind of talk through this chapter a bit and uh, highlight some of the dynamics and also visit over and just mention some of the ways that I think that is highly applicable, massively applicable, directly applicable to things going on this week over the last seven or eight to 10 months 
and uh, my goodness, um, the entirety of American history, basically. So first, uh, verses 1 to 4. Um, so Jesus has just been in the temple in chapters 11 and 12, and he's been having this, this series of controversies with the temple leadership. And Jesus is leaving the temple, and one of his disciples says to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that uh, the, the stones that represent the foundation of the temple mount are unbelievably massive. And it's very interesting. Um, the disciples, one of the disciples says this to Jesus. Um, this is probably that disciple's first time to Jerusalem. It's not like Peter and James and John and some of the others had been kind of going down to Jerusalem and back. I mean, if you lived in Judea and were a fisherman or were a laborer, you probably just never left your area. They, I mean, this is their first time to the big city. This is the first time seeing the temple, and it's impressive. And uh, it's really interesting here uh, what this statement represents for the disciples. This, again, represents the disciples' um, refusal to listen to Jesus. It's interesting, um, this disciple says, look, teacher. And um, if you know an, an attentive reader will kind of go back um, to chapter 11, verse 21, when Peter said, Rabbi, look. And here we have, teacher, look. Uh, so, I mean, those are closely associated statements. Um, in, in chapter 11, verse uh, 20 and 21, Peter is directing Jesus' attention to the fig tree. And the fig tree had it had withered because it was dead all the way down to the roots. And so what you're supposed to take away from this is with this disciple saying, you know, teacher, look, uh, Mark is subtly associating the uh, the temple and its stones and its magnificent buildings with the fig tree. Like the fig tree, the temple is dead. It's corrupt all the way down to the core. Um, and what's also interesting here is the disciples, um, they they know they've been there with Jesus in chapter 11 when uh, Jesus condemned the temple and when he, said, when he passed God's judgment on the temple, and they are impressed with it. They're like amazed with it. And I think this is so revelatory of our, our human proclivity to have a deep-seated confidence in institutions, in institutions that may or may not have one time enjoyed God's endorsement and God's blessing, like the temple. Um, I mean, just think about how we can tend to sort of have a default confidence in uh, earthly institutions that we associate with God's blessing like some kind of an evangelistic association or a Christian institution or a Christian parachurch organization or a large megachurch or, or anything like that with, with a, an impressive array of buildings. It's easy to assume that somehow these institutions automatically enjoy God's blessing and we can forget that institutions may or may not for a season um, enjoy some kind of fruitfulness or whatever, but when they become sites of exploitation or oppression or exclusion or marginalization or any kind of injustice toward the vulnerable, they become objects of God's judgment, which is what has happened to the temple and its leadership. And because of that, um, Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's what's going to happen because Jesus has already issued God's judgment on the temple. And the disciples just aren't getting it. They're not, they're not attending closely to what Jesus means and how serious he is about that reality. I think even of um, uh, any earthly institution, uh, even a national institution, which is an earthly invention, um, we often, I think that there, it's, it's highly problematic point that I've made in the past, that um, America should have no, we should have no illusion that America somehow enjoys God's unique blessing or any kind of unique favor with God whatsoever. Um, we are we are an earthly invention. We are a nation with blood on our hands, and we participate in loads of injustice. 
And um, yeah, we have to be examining our own um, sort of deep-seated confidence that somehow America enjoys God's unique blessing. It does not whatsoever. Um, yeah, read read history. Read the history of our people and, and what we have all been about. Very interestingly here, um, how Mark narrates what Jesus does in verse 3, uh, he, uh, he says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, you know, what, what are you talking about? Give us a sign. Or, I mean, can you talk a little bit more about when these things are going to happen and what what are what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? Well, just to say, um, you know, Mark has Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. You remember in the previous chapter, Mark had Jesus sitting opposite the temple treasury. It's the same Greek term. Jesus sitting in that posture as a judge, passing judgment, and definitely opposed to the temple, basically um, issuing God's word of judgment against it and what it has become. Next, we have uh, verses 5 uh, to 23, where Jesus is in this long discourse. He's going to talk about the signs that will point to the temple's destruction. And these are not necessarily like you know heavenly signs that you should be on the lookout for or going to be impossible to detect. These are the sorts of things that you can easily discern if you just look out at culture with a clear mind, like developing cultural unrest, rebellion on the part of the Jewish people, things getting so hot culturally, hot and contested, that there's going to be you know a military siege of the temple, and man, you got to get out of town if that happens. Uh, which is what Jesus is likely referring to in verses 14 and following. So these are not sort of heavenly signs that you should be looking out for. It's it's basically an exhortation. Pay close attention to how culture is developing because your basic mission as the church is to be on the lookout for the vulnerable and the exploited and excluded and the oppressed. And because my call to you, this is Jesus talking, you know, because my call to you is to become communities of hospitality and rest and refreshment and service, you're going to need to be on the lookout because the vulnerable will get chewed up in all of this uh, social violence. So the disciples need to be on the lookout to read these signs and take action uh, to be uh, carrying out their mission um, to be on the lookout for the vulnerable. So um, Jesus, in the first instance here, is talking about the signs that are going to point to the temple's destruction. But like I've already indicated, he also points to the reality that this entire age is going to be one of constant disasters, of wars, of famine, heck, of pandemics. And I say that because, I mean, I I say that Jesus is pointing to an entire age of unfolding destruction and um, cataclysm because in verse 10, Jesus says that the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And so this really is a, a larger, longer view of how history is going to unfold until the end of the age. And he makes two points throughout this, this um, section in verses 5 to 23, um, constantly warning the disciples not to be deceived, to be on guard, to watch out, etc. And what is it? that the disciples are supposed to watch out for? Well, two things. And I would not have been able to predict this before I really got into studying this. This is just really fascinating with so many implications for our day. First of all, Jesus is telling them, don't be deceived into thinking that the temple's destruction um, is a sign of the end of the age. The temple's destruction or any kind of large-scale catastrophe in any of these large... Uh, scale catastrophes that characterize the present age, none of these are signs of the end of the age. That is huge. Like I said, disciples need to be clear-headed about staying true to their mission, which is to become uh, communities of welcome and hospitality for the marginalized and service to the poor and the needy. And they're not supposed to get caught up in eschatological speculation or thinking that the the end of the age is going to come. That will distract them from taking action to be on the lookout for those who are vulnerable. 
I thought that was fascinating just because um, I have heard, I can't even tell you over the last nine, 10 months uh, from Christian people, um, because our lives have become so uncomfortable with this pandemic, I've heard talk about signs of the coming of the Lord or you know, Jesus is on his way. That kind of a sentiment is understandable, but it is basically making the same mistake that the, the disciples would make. And which is why Jesus warns them strongly in this passage, watch out that no one deceives you because you're going to hear these messages, you know, that uh, the end is near or something like that. The Lord is on his way. None of these are signs that the Lord is on his way. That this is sort of how life is going to unfold in this age. And the second deception is, um, or the second thing not to be deceived about is the disciples are not to be deceived into thinking that since the temple had God's name and his promises attached to it, that God will somehow save it from destruction. It is going to be destroyed. It has become an agency of, of injustice, of oppression of the poor. And because of that, God has already judged it. Don't assume that because it's so impressive, because it has some kind of attachment to the God of Israel, that God has not abandoned it and um, has already given it up for destruction. Don't be deceived by false hope, by false promises that disciples will be somehow preserved from suffering and from harm. The disciples don't have any promises of safety. In fact, Jesus says that the age of ongoing destruction is going to affect Christians too. The hope that Christians have is resurrection in the future age, not preservation from suffering or from death. That is something that uh, we need to take to heart. Jesus does not give to Christians any promises of safety in this age at all. No promises of that at all. Uh, no promises that are attached to um, you know irresponsible behavior, like you're not going to get COVID and uh, have something bad happen. Um, that is a complete ignoring of how the New Testament works. Oh, goodness. So much to be said about that. Back to the text, though. I'm, I'll keep hammering that as I make my way through the passage here. Um, there's an inclusio. Of course there is. This is Mark. I mean, Mark loves these. And uh, an inclusio is a bracket, some kind of bracketing uh, device that holds sections of text together. And we have uh, one of these in verses 5 to 23 um, that stresses the necessity of watching out and not being deceived. So we have a repetition in verses 5 and 23 of the Greek verb. Uh, it's an imperative, blepete. It's, uh, it appears in verse 5 and in verse 23, and it's translated. The NIV translates it anyway in verse 5 as watch out, and in verse 23, be on your guard. Both of those are good translations of that verb. Um, and then also, there's um, the appearance of the verb planao, which means to uh, to deceive or to be deceived. And we have that twice in verse 5 and then verse 6 and then verse 22. So, um, bracketing this section in verses 5 and 6 and verses 22 and 23 are exhortations not to be deceived and to watch out. And uh, like I said, those highlight um, uh, the fact that this whole passage is hitting that note. Be alert, be awake, watch out, be on guard, um, and don't be deceived. And the deception is most it's easiest for uh, Christian communities and for disciples of Jesus um, because it has these arise from sentiment, um, from some kind of implicit promise of God to protect institutions that formerly enjoyed God's blessing and to somehow protect Christians. And um, yeah, this is a very sobering passage. Um, you know, during tumultuous times that um, precede, uh, catastrophes in history, just like the tumultuous times that precede the temple's destruction, these deceptive messages are going to come because people want hope and they want some assurance that they're going to be okay or that somehow God is on his way to save. And Jesus is saying, don't listen to these easy, false assurances. And uh, my goodness, that is so applicable today. And I've already mentioned COVID. Um, you know, churches gathering irresponsibly, defying uh, state governments 
out of some kind of assumption that God is going to protect them. That is so irresponsible, and it is a failure to listen to Jesus in Mark 13. It's also um, a failure to recognize that in Matthew and in Luke, the temptations of G- when Satan tempts G- uh, Jesus, he tempts him to take irresponsible action um, out of some presumption that God is not going to cause his foot to be struck against a stone. So, I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are blaring at us that that logic of assume, making assumptions and then presuming on God in the midst of a pandemic is satanic and that it is a failure to listen to Jesus. Uh, furthermore, I've just been thinking, my goodness, ever since the election um, was concluded, um, well, you know, officially, or I should say um, in reality, it hasn't been sort of officially called yet as of Monday, uh, the 23rd. Um, but I've seen this very same thing happening ever since uh, election day anyway, 20 days ago. And that is um, all these Christians making bold prophetic statements or believing some kind of promise about the president hanging on to power. These have these just are being pulled out of thin air. And again, a failure to reckon with uh, Jesus's constant exhortation to be on guard, be on the lookout, watch out, um, stay awake, be alert, don't be deceived. I mean, after all, such false prophecies have a very long history, and they have a long history that precede even this passage. One of the things that's interesting about Mark chapter 13 is there are loads of verbal cues all the way throughout um, that point to, or that link this passage to prophetic texts from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from Ezekiel, um, because those are previous prophets who, very much like John the Baptist and very much like Jesus, routinely called out the injustices of the temple authorities and of of the people, and who then foretold the temple's destruction because of those uh, injustices and because of a lack of repentance. So in this, just like those prophets, false prophets arose in their day to assure the people that they'd be fine. I mean, goodness, this is the temple, Jeremiah. God's not going to allow his house to be destroyed. In Mark 13, uh, verse 6, Jesus says, Many will come in my name, making claims, and are going to deceive many. That expression, in my name, comes from Jeremiah 14. And this is Jeremiah 14, verses 14 to 16. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them. Yet they are saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by the sword and famine. And the people they are prophesying to will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and sword. There will be no one to bury them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. So we have these, just like that passage, Jesus says in verses 5 and 6, and then in verse 22, that false messiahs and false prophets will appear, perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So again, as I've said, we see this very thing happening today. I mean, Christian leaders and Christians and pastors somehow imagining that they are going to be preserved from the pandemic and its consequences, or people assuming that somehow the Republican president has God's endorsement and are prophesying the craziest things in the name of Jesus. I just think of Paula White, who is a complete charlatan, and um, other evangelical figures saw some video a week or two ago of Christians praying at voting centers. I mean, all of this is mass American participation in deception. Think critically. Saturate your mind in Scripture. Don't be taken in. Listen to Jesus. So, Moving on in verse 7b, 
uh, when you hear of calamitous events, this is one of the reasons I was saying don't, these calamitous events, these calamities, these catastrophes um, are going to happen. Don't think that this is the end. And that's what Jesus says. Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. That is to say, this age is going to be an ongoing age of destruction and upheaval and um, an unending series of of, uh, catastrophes. None of these signal the end of the age. Um, Moving to, just to kind of summarize some things, moving to verses 9 to 13, um, Jesus notes here that Christians are not going to be spared. This is a pretty sobering talk to his disciples. I mean, capricious events are going to overtake you, boys. This is what he's saying to his disciples, which is the same thing that happened to John the Baptist. I mean, this is the experience of being Christian in this world. John the Baptist called out uh, the injustice of Herod and his wife and um, basically lost his life because of a drunken boast of the king at a dinner and um, his offer uh, to his wife that he, he would do anything that she asks. And she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and uh, he had to end up giving it to her. Like I said, capricious events are going to overtake the disciples just like they did with John and just like they did with Jesus. Because of the power games on the uh, among the Sanhedrin, Jesus gets arrested and he gets killed. The same is going to happen to disciples. They're going to be handed over, they're going to be arrested, and they'll be put to death. Um, I mean, these are sobering words. You, as a Christian person, just might get killed. Uh, in in a, a larger set of circumstances that seem like there's no logic to them whatsoever, because this age is an age of ongoing destruction. Stay faithful. I mean, the larger logic to all of this is going to come at the end of Mark, where God proclaims his judgment, not only on the temple, but on this whole entire age. This age has been judged, and the new age has been inaugurated in Jesus's death. And um, the way that this works is disciples lose their lives in this age to have them or save them in the age to come. Um, And that's Jesus's uh, way of saying, don't hold on to your life in this age. It's things are just going to unfold in a way that's completely, you know, without logic. And some of you are going to lose your lives. And this is why, uh, by the way, I had written a series of blog posts uh, earlier in uh, at the beginning of this pandemic because I had seen some folks um, posting online about, you know, you we're getting all this bad news. Just keep in mind that God is in control. And after coming out of this study in Mark 13, it's like that is not. That is not a faithful way of talking about how Christians are going to experience this world and this age and history. Because um, we say things like that, that God is in control, as a way of trying to allay our fears that somehow things are going to make sense. Somehow there's a larger logic to how everything works and we'll be okay. But the present age has already been judged by God, and we are already alive in the age to come. Um I mean, God at some point is going to fully and finally judge this age and end it. But in the meantime, he's not micromanaging it so that we don't get hurt. I mean, the logic of this age is all hell is breaking loose and people are going to get hurt. And Christians should not think that they are exempt from how that all happens. What we are promised is that beyond this age of uh, which will feel like all hell breaking loose beyond all of this, we will be raised from the dead to participate in the age to come. That's the logic um, of the Christian faith. That's the logic of Mark, of Paul, of um, every document basically in the New Testament. So another reason to not have any um, confidence or faith in false promises, have a gritty, realistic view of how things work in this age. Uh, Moving on to verses uh, 14 uh, to 20. Um, Jesus basically says, watch for signs of the temple's destruction. That is to say, keep an eye on the revolutionary fervor that is that is intensifying here in Jerusalem, people. I mean, it's getting crazy. I mean, he's talking about the revolutionary fervor that wants to drive out the Romans. 
and he talks about um, an event that is going to take place um, uh, to which he refers in verse 14 and beyond and uh, an abomination that causes desolation. And I have to say, I don't know exactly uh, what this is a reference to. Um, it might be a, a reference to um, you know, the Roman uh, standards that are brought into the temple. The Romans desecrating the temple and basically making it no longer functional. Um, I don't know for sure. There's no way to know for sure. There's a couple different um, proposals. Um, but certainly, Jesus' first audience knows what he's talking about. And even Mark's audience knows what he's talking about. Uh, but in our day, uh, this this might be one of these things that's sort of lost to history. At any rate, people are supposed to see this and know, all right, this is it. It This whole thing's going to pop. I mean, Jerusalem is becoming sort of a tinderbox of passion and revolutionary fervor and wanting to get the Romans out. And the Romans are responding with just intensifying persecution and pressure and boy, when things blow, they're going to blow. And you people look out for that. And when you see that's about to happen and the precipitating social events for just completely everything blowing um, occur, be wise and take action. You might need to flee the city. I mean, grab all the vulnerable people that you can, look after your community and take action because the mission of the church is hospitality and care and you, you're going to need to know how to respond. And Jesus' Jesus's priority is on the care of the community and those who are vulnerable. And like I said, uh, he mentions just getting out of Dodge when all that happens. It's gonna, it is going to blow. And if you put yourself into an unwise situation, you have no promise that it's not going to go really bad for you. And again, back to back to events of our day that are, you know, this is timely for us with this pandemic, be wise. Um, I mean, all these anti-mask people, many of whom are Christian people, not wanting to um, be imposed upon, it's completely insane and a complete lack of paying attention to Mark chapter 13. I mean, be sober, get good information, take steps to look after people, I just want to expand a little bit uh, on something that Jesus says here. He says something very interesting. He says, let the reader understand in verse 14. And this is really fascinating. Uh, and so just to make sure that I get it right, I'm going to read a portion from, uh, from the commentary. The exhortation for the reader to understand builds on Mark's use of sensory language for discernment that I've made reference to before. Jesus had spoken of seeing hearing, and understanding in the parable of the sower and the soils from chapter 4. Outsiders of the kingdom are, are those who might see and hear, but will fail to perceive and understand. After demonstrating the progressively darkening vision of Jesus and his teaching, Jesus questions them. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? That's from chapter 8. Do you still not understand? When Jesus cursed the fig tree, the disciples heard it, and later the disciples saw it in its withered condition, but there's no mention that they understood it, like as if they uh, didn't grasp its meaning. Because when they leave the temple and point to its impressive grandeur and its stunning beauty, they indicate that while seeing and hearing, they have not understood what Jesus has been teaching them. This lack of understanding on the part of the disciples and Mark's audiences will be devastatingly costly. If they listen to persuasive voices that provide assurances of God's continuing protection of Jerusalem and the temple, they will not take seriously Jesus' words to flee the city. And if subsequent generations of Mark's audiences do not pay close attention to what Jesus has said, they likewise will suffer disasters that would otherwise have been avoidable. The gospel of the kingdom in Mark specifically has its cross-orientation in view, a call for disciples to join the cross-directed Messiah on the way to the cross. This present age is headed for destruction, and all institutions that partake of it are also headed for destruction. The innate impulse towards self-preservation and self-protection that, that leads people to seek safety in supposedly secure institutions will constantly drive resistance to identifying thoroughly with the cross. That's a passage uh, from the commentary that basically summarizes um, the import 
of what Jesus is saying in verses 5 uh, to 23. Four verses, uh, Jesus talks about his return or the coming of the Son of Man. And there's a transition in verse 24 uh, where Jesus says, but in those days, so he's talking about something different. And that's that's like a um, prophetic tip-off language that he's talking about the end times. Like this is actually, you know, I'm talking about the the end of the age here when the Son of Man returns to judge, which is a different event than what he's been talking about from verses 5 to 23. Okay, this whole ongoing age of destruction, and then this unique event, the Son of Man's return. And that is going to be uh, an event that has no signs. Um, in fact, what, what he says there, uh, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, etc. Those are not signs that you know the Son of Man is on his way. The convulsion of the cosmos you know, this, this upheaval of nature is what happens in Scripture whenever God shows up to save or to judge. That's, so I mean, what Jesus is describing is stuff that happens when it's too late. These are not signs pointing to Jesus' coming. That's what happens when he comes. And of course, he is um, coming in judgment and in salvation for his people in judgment um, of his enemies. Uh, then the chapter closes with uh, two parables. In verses 28 to 31, Jesus tells this parable of the fig tree, again, associating that with the temple. Basically, uh, this is a parable that says, discern the signs of impending events and take action. When you see you know, a fig tree gr- growing leaves, you know that summer's on its way, that you can observe it. In the same way, look out at culture and at social developments and um, have the discernment to know what's happening and then take action. And finally, uh, the second parable is the parable of the watchman. This is a parable that goes along with um, uh, uh, verses 24 to 27, the coming of the Son of Man. And um, I'll just read this uh, a paragraph from the commentary. This parable has to do with being watchful in the present age in anticipation of the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus commends being watchful and warns against sleeping. What does he mean? Being watchful and diligent involves paying attention to what Jesus has said to do throughout the, throughout Mark's gospel. Disciples are to cultivate communities that embody the cross-shaped Messiah by offering hospitality to the marginalized and serving the poor and needy, those with no social capital. To be sleeping means to become complacent about cultivating these sorts of communities. Communities that are asleep are those that are formed by the habits and social patterns of the surrounding cultures. And such complacency is not merely unfortunate, but satanic. Since by all appearances, churches and Christian communities will continue to exist, but they will be communities formed by the word of a kingdom with no cross. Satan will have snatched away the word. Or... Worries about other things will have crept in ever so subtly that other sorts of concerns smother the word and make it lifeless. And those last comments are references to the parable of the sower and soils in chapter 4. So being awake and alert means cultivating community life of service and hospitality, resisting becoming a community of prestige or questing after power, as we see um, so many evangelicals have fallen captive to, or allying with power and prestige like so many are doing and have done. In fact, um, being asleep means being wrapped up in um, eschatological speculation about when the Lord will return. Again, we don't know, and we can't know, and even Jesus doesn't know. He says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, nor even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So um, being ready, being alert, being watchful means uh, cultivating community practices that embody the cross. So Mark chapter 13, uh, after I've ended up studying it, not only uh, the first time I taught it with um, team teaching it with my friend Don in our church, um has turned out to be sort of a surprising passage that no longer freaks me out. And it's a passage that offers a lot of wisdom 
um, for being sensible, for, for taking sensible action in the light of, of uh, what we're seeing develop around us. And um, my goodness, this is ever so timely for a very contested, conflicted social cl- uh, climate that we are experiencing here in America anyway with um, uh, in, a, in an election season. And this kind of season will come around again. Uh, but not only that, but in the middle of this pandemic that is surely to get worse uh, over these winter months, um, listening, uh, attending to Jesus's words here and being being people and communities that are watchful means being wise and taking action because inevitably uh, things affect the vulnerable among us uh, the most. As with every day, there's a lot to get freaked out about, but there's also a lot to be happy about. And just like every day, this one's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. In verses 24 to 27, uh, there's a transition in uh, verse 24. This is in these three verses. Uh, sorry, 